Good morning. I'm Julia. I'm a member of Al-Anon. I want to thank the committee for asking me. Judy called and wrote us and uh, asked myself and my husband Keith to speak this weekend. And I really appreciate the invitation. It's an invitation that will give me an opportunity for growth. And this is my very first conference to speak at. Where I'm from in North Carolina, we don't have very many Al-Anon speakers. So virtually because of this reason, we have very little training in this regard. And so I have spoken a few times at local meetings in my area, but this is my first conference, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. One of the things I wanted to talk about this morning is something we talked about at breakfast. And uh, Jeannie and her husband, Doug, have been gracious enough to have us as house guests this weekend, and I appreciate that. One of the things we talked about at breakfast was fear and how many fears that we all have and, and the fact that some fears are irrational no matter how hard we try to realize what they are and try to rationalize them and put them to rest, but they're still there. And um, I told Doug, who I hope I won't mess up by telling him that he's an attorney, but I told him <laughs> I told him that I am uh, most comfortable in court. I'm a probation parole officer, and I can get up and argue the point any day of the week about whether somebody goes to prison or doesn't go. So anybody in this room that has been to court, had a family member in court, has been a close proximity to court. <laughs> uh, that will count for just about 90% of us. <laughs> if you would please, this morning, plan to be the defense counsel, uh, the attorneys, the prosecutor, the judge, the audience, and the jury, I will feel most at home. <laughs> That's where my forte is. I wanted to read this. I found this on the airplane, and this is not conference-approved literature, but I'm going to read it anyway. <laughs> uh, this was a little caption that was in Reader's Digest this month. It says, during her campaign for president, Liz Dole took a playful jab at herself. Some pundits say that I am scripted, she said, but according to my notes, that's not true. <laughs> I am up here with notes. Uh, I don't feel comfortable doing this without them, and I hope you'll understand that. So if I'm reading half of my story... Just know that I read better than I speak, and I'm going to go with it that way. Okay. I am from uh, the Serenity Al-Anon Family Group. That's my home group. It meets on Monday night in Wilmington, North Carolina, on South College Road at Wesley Methodist Church. And we would invite you to come and participate with us at our meeting if you're ever in Wilmington. Wilmington's a seaport town on the coast of North Carolina, and we would love to show you a good time. And um, if you're in the area, please call and let us know. You know, we would like to take you to a meeting, or I'm sure Keith would like to take you to his home AA group. I came into Al-Anon August 1st, 1984. And that first year of Al-Anon was a combination of AA and Al-Anon meetings. Uh, the closest group for Al-Anon in my hometown, from my hometown, was 20 minutes away. The next closest group was 45 minutes away. The 45-minute group became my home group at Bronson Presbyterian Church in Southern Pines, North Carolina. And it's still very special to me, that particular group. I got to Al-Anon because of AA. And I will always be grateful to AA because of that. Uh, as a probation officer, I had told people to go to AA. I knew that it helped people, but that's basically what I knew about AA. And so I went to start going to open AA meetings. I met a friend named Teresa who was in AA, and she introduced me to a couple friends of hers. She also happened to be my neighbor at the time. And I went to a few open meetings with her. It's funny, the AAs knew something was wrong with me before I knew how to work on myself. <laughs> we have these radar, you know, we pick up each other. So um, they were very precious, and I went to a lot of open meetings. I also went to a lot of club meetings, not knowing I wasn't supposed to be there. They were gracious, and I stood up in the AA meetings, and I read the openings, I read the steps, I read the traditions, whatever I was asked to do, you know, because they took me in. And my changes, and I count that first year, even though it was very much a combination of AA and Al-Anon meetings, I count that first year as the beginning of my recovery because that's when I started making the changes in my life that I needed to make. Uh, but that first year, I did go to just as many AA meetings as I did Al-Anon because Al-Anon was so far away. Through the years, I still go to a lot of open AA meetings. I have found that probably 80% of what we talk about is crossover areas that are pertinent to both I had the ism in, versus anybody in this room. You know, the alcoholic loved alcohol, and I loved the alcoholic. You know, and that's why we tried to fix ourselves by trying to do that. 
Grew up in a small town in North Carolina. It's Troy, North Carolina, and if you're ever through the middle of the state, I hope you'll stop and see it. Uh, I am very blessed to have been in that small town growing up. It has about 3,500 people now. It's probably not gained 500 people since I left. But um, it's the county seat of Montgomery County, and it's a beautiful little place. You know, it's all that you think about with white picket fences and a little small town and wonderful, good moral values. Now, I go back, and some people say, why are we like we are, you know? I had character defects when I was a little girl. And it's just like the alcoholic going trying to figure out why he drank in the first place. I don't know why I have the character defects that I have. Today it does not matter. What it matters to me is that I recognize those character defects, that I take inventory, and that I work to change what I can change. And that's what's important to me today. I had two loving parents and a sister that's five years older. But what I realized is that going back into an inventory work that even at an early age, my views were distorted about life. I was very much a people pleaser, and I tried to control things to get it to come out the way so I would look the best. I was afraid of failure. I did not want anybody to know that I was afraid, and I wouldn't come ask you for help. I would sit around, just like many of us do, and watch other people and try to figure out what I was supposed to do in life. I would not come forward and ask that. I was telling someone earlier of a lady that I sponsored in Fayetteville, North Carolina, when Keith and I lived over there. Her name is Mary Rose, and she's a very beautiful lady. And she said, she was talking one day about when she first came to Al-Anon, and people told her about the different kinds of meetings. They talked about discussion meetings. They talked about speaker meetings. talked about step meetings. So Mary Rose did not know what a step meeting was. She thought that's when you got out on the front of the building, sat on the steps, and had a meeting. <laughs> now, so I understand exactly where she was coming from because I wouldn't ask any questions either. And it took me a long time coming here before I would ask those questions. And now I encourage people in the fellowship, I encourage the people that I work with to please come forward and ask a question. Especially at work, I encourage people because of the business that I'm in as a probation parole officer. If I'm out in the field and I'm going to go arrest somebody, you better tell me what you're afraid of. If, if little tiny people or big people or big dogs or whatever scares you, I cannot compensate for you if I don't know what the problem is. But it is funny what we're afraid of. Pat, I was a radio announcer. And you wouldn't know it because my knees are up here. They are typing out Morse code as I stand here. <laughs> but my family had a radio station, and I grew up in the summertime. And when I got old enough, I used to mow the grass to earn a living and had been sitting on several acres on a hill. And I got in high school and college. I filled all the air shifts in the summertime, you know, and I was recording commercials when I was seven years old. And so I've had a varied life, but I did it all in fear. I did everything in fear. I never got up and felt comfortable. So I started out in the fear and enabling behavior and trying to control others. Um, lots of fears were there early on. I was a good student in school. And I thank God for the brain capacity that I have. But, and I wanted to do well. I wanted to do well in life. But there was an overriding fear that I did not do well Everything was going to crash down on my head for my parents' sake. I was especially afraid of what my father would say. And I picked up on things. Instead of picking up on the fact that your parents encourage you to do well, I picked up the big hand was going to come down and really do something bad to me. Um, my grades were good through high school and college. And I was afraid because I would come home with a B plus and it was not good enough because it wasn't an A. And that was kind of drummed into me. So I was, you know, I was afraid of what I would, would do with what I brought home. I always think back I, in high school, my junior, senior year, when we had to read Macbeth. Anybody here that hadn't read Macbeth? <laughs> double, double, toll, and trouble. <laughs> and I was in it. <laughs> I was about in that cauldron, and I already was in it. But anyway, we all had to memorize at least so many lines of Macbeth. So... The things I volunteered for in life were the things where I could volunteer to be first. I wanted to be first so you could compare me or forget about me. You know, if I came first and other people came along and their soliloquy was much better than mine, you would forget about the bad job that I did. So I always volunteered to be first. I got that out of the way. Uh, otherwise, also, I would never hear what you, if I was waiting in line to hear, to do my part and you were ahead of me, I wouldn't hear what you said. 
I was just a bundle of nerves. I had a good relationship with my sister growing up as a child. Like I said, she was five years older. Um, and I'll get back to her a little bit later because our relationship is on the rocks somewhat now. But I'll touch on that a little bit later go along. I grew up much closer to my mother than my father. My father is a banker and since retired, but he was very busy in his career when I was growing up. Um, Mom worked at the radio station, but she had more time to get off and spend with myself and my sister. Um, By junior high, my dad had become fairly successful in his career, so they began picking up friends and getting into the social scene a lot more than what they had in the past. Many of the relationships that I now know were probably alcoholic began to develop, and they would party with people, and and there started to be more liquor in the house. When I was a little girl, I didn't notice much liquor being in the house. Um, But by the time junior high came along, my dad was fairly successful, and he became a bank president, and and there was a little bit more entertaining going on. Both my parents drank. And one time I saw my father drink, and I was concerned because he drove someone home. And I knew that you shouldn't be drinking and driving. But there did not to be anything, particularly he was not really drunk or anything like that, just had one drink, as best I can remember. Um, I was afraid of my mother's drinking. My mother had a profound personality change when she drank. She didn't drink many years of her life, but she did drink. And when she drank, I was afraid she was become a loose woman. Now, I had grown up, you know, with a whole lot of moral values, and I can tell you I was much more of a loose woman than my mother ever was. (laughs) So thank God for Al-Anon, because at least gets it back to perspective what it really is, you know. (laughs) I would, people said, well, I would watch the other person drink. I didn't watch, I lurked around corners and I watched them. One of the great things I found about Al-Anon was I learned to get truthful, and as the longer as I go along in Al-Anon, I get more truthful, and I hope that never stops. My loving husband pointed out something to me that hurt me very badly when we were dating, but it proved to be very good because, you know, the things I thought I was doing for other people that I thought were doing out of acts of kindness, of course, were because I wanted to control somebody. But I would call it anything else, but he, he mentioned one day that, that something I was doing was manipulative. And I hated the word manipulative. And he hit the nail on the head. And that's exactly what it was. So I spent my life trying to dodge and move things around, you know, so the outcome would work out the way I wanted it to. When my parents kind of got more into the drinking scene, I would come home days. My mother had learned how to use a blender. (laughs) The blender came out earlier in the day. So she got good at the blender, and so I, all I can remember was that they made something called Golden Cadillacs, which had, I think, rum in it or something, but they were pretty strong. They they seemed to get stronger, I think, because I could see things happening a little bit earlier in the day. But anyway, I would go into the kitchen cabinets. I'd find bottles of liquor hidden behind the condiments. Things, you know, the normal person may have a liquor cabinet. They may have a... You know, a bottle sitting up on their shelf or whatever that may stay there until dust forms on it. But uh, these bottles were way back in the cabinet, you know, either hidden. Some days I would find them, and I would try to hide them even further. <laughs> I thought if I could put it out of sight, you know, maybe she would forget where she put it. She had hidden it to start with, and maybe she just thought, well, I hid it too well, I can't find it myself. So I, I would hide them a little bit further. Her response to all this was that she didn't want the neighbors to see what was going on, you know, because some people didn't approve of drinking. But all these things were going on in my head, and I was clocking everybody's action. I would clock their action. The people came into the house to drink. So very early on, I was watching all this. But nobody told me that I couldn't talk about this, but somehow I knew I was supposed to be silent. I couldn't tell them I was afraid of their drinking. You know, but that thing was kicking in of control and trying to protect my parents and hoping that nothing was going to happen about that. They had a couple that they hung out with quite a bit, a lady that worked at the bank with my dad. And I hope to this day, I hope somewhere that that lady got in the fellowship of AA. I hope and pray that she got there. Um, got a call one day from her husband. We went down to the bank. They happened to be with my parents, so I went with them. Of course, because I'm always watching what everybody's doing. So I'm in the car. 
And we go down there, and this lady's getting ready to commit suicide. And I walked in the bank with them, and the officers was on a weekend. The gun is laying there on the desk. Now, the average person would call the police. But we spent much, much hours trying to talk her out of committing suicide. We finally did. But I can remember the fear in my heart standing there watching this. You know, because I wasn't quite old enough to be convincing because I wasn't quite an adulthood. You know, and, and I always thought, well, she's not going to listen to me. She's an adult. Um, but they spent all this time and did talk her out of committing suicide. But it was frightening. You know, because, and that really jolted me, again, you know, about the power of alcohol and how much it had done to other people. Uh, when all these things were going on in my parents' life, my mother was very jealous of my father. I do not know if she had anything to be jealous about, whether her fears were founded or unfounded, but it resulted in causing a lot of problems for them. They stayed together the rest of their lives until my mother died. And I do think they loved each other very much, but they drifted apart emotionally. My mother's world got smaller and smaller. My dad was progressing on his career. My mother got more isolated, and she got to a point where she wouldn't do a whole lot of things with other friends other than just her immediate family. Um, this didn't set well in the family because my father was a climber, and, of course, he needed a wife on his arm to get out and things with, you know, and, and do the social things that people need to do in that arena. But they did manage to stay together, and, and it teaches me a little bit of something about commitment. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, they didn't get along, why didn't they split up, you know? But this day and time, it's too easy to split up. That's one of the things that Al-Anon has reminded me of over the years, is to make a commitment and stick to it. I'm here today because my sponsor told me to come here. If I waited till I wasn't afraid, I wouldn't have showed up. <laughs> Our plane was an hour late in Charlotte coming here yesterday. And I said, you want to go back to Wilmington? <laughs> Keith said, the fat's in the fire now. you got to go. <laughs> but I did know that somewhere along the line, my parents did love each other. I have a photo. Um, my father received a 40-year service award from the bank. And it's a picture of the two of them holding each other, looking into each other's eyes. And by that time, they had drifted apart, but it was just that moment in time, and I won't, you know, if I ever took a photo, that one's really important to me. And I hold on to that, and I look at it, because it's a reminder of me that things were not always as adrift for them as they were. I like the photo now, too, because it, it reminds me of when they drifted apart and when they had been together. And I know that Keith and I don't have to go through that. We each have a program. We each have sponsors. And it's very important to know that we have the fellowship of this room and people here and our sponsors to work these things out. And there's no reason for us to ever have to drift apart. I also remember something later, you know, we have brain damage too. <laughs> I told Keith recently, because I told him, I said, I don't think I've ever told you this, but, you know, in junior high when you grow out of maybe collecting dolls, you start collecting stuffed elephants. So I collected pink elephants. <laughs> Keith had the story about when he was a little boy being five years old, you know, having his first taste of alcohol in a Superman glass, you know, and thinking that maybe that was significant later on in his alcoholism. <laughs> but I think it's very strange in junior high that I collected pink elephants. That's a precursor to collecting alcoholics. <laughs> you have to have those preparation years, you know. I do need to tell you, though, that this is something I don't know whether I can say it without crying, but I need to tell it anyway, something I'm very ashamed about. Um, people talk about the alcoholic and the lack of responsibility in that person's life, you know, how they did not fulfill their promises, how they, you know, would leave you standing somewhere, you know, and not show up, and all the lack of responsibility. I don't know that I'm any more responsible than any alcoholic in this room. I had a dog, and when I was in junior high, which is much, much old enough to um, understand the responsibility of life, to um, appreciate what needs to care for an animal, much less a human being. And I had a dog, and my dad got this dog for me, you know, as a nice thing, as a gift. And I basically let that dog die. 
I did it because I got busy in life. I got forgetful. I did not feed that dog on a regular basis. And the dog got sick. And he dwindled down to skin and bones. And I have to tell you about this because it's a blinding reminder to me of how irresponsible I can get. And today I would never do that. But my view of life was so distorted, you know, and I would put things on the back burner and I would say, well, I'll get to it, and I never got to it. Well, if you don't feed an animal enough, it'll die. And basically what my father had to do was go out and shoot it. And I won't forget that. And it hurts to this day that this happened, but I have to tell it because I have to be reminded that I can go back and be that irresponsible. Today I'm responsible for a whole lot of things. I'm responsible for a whole lot of lives. And I just got a promotion, and I'm going to be responsible for more than I ever had. So it's important to me that I I take my responsibilities and my commitment serious, and that I have you to come to when I have fears and when my life gets distorted. My junior high years, I played on a basketball team. Uh, Again, I grew closer to my mother who had time to come to the games, and my father was still pretty busy in his career. But when I came into Al-Anon, I realized that I could look at my parents through a different set of eyes, that I didn't have to have resentments. And I flat out refused to be a victim, and I'm not going to blame a soul for my state of life or what I've been through except myself. I made my own choices. And it took these rooms to get things back in the proper perspective, working these steps. Um, but what I realized about my parents, the longer I'm here, is the more I realized about their own fears. My dad was very much afraid of failure, and he would not tell you that because he had volunteered out in the community so much himself. And to this very day, I see so many things about myself that are just like my parents, you know, spectrums on both sides of the fence. Uh, Once my sister and I got a little bit older, and we were too old to sit on dad's knee and joke and cut up anymore, you know, I don't think dad really knew what to do with us, with two daughters. But... um. What has happened because of the graces of Al-Anon is in the last few years I've been able to rebuild a relationship with my father. And many, many times I don't like his choices. He may not have liked mine. And sometimes he was around, and when I talk about my sister with him and the fact that their relationship is very much estranged, and I said, well, you know, Dad, I made a lot of mistakes myself. And he said, well, you learn from yours. And that's the greatest compliment anybody can give me. Because I'm not a whole lot different from my sister. It's just I'm not willing to be a victim, and I'm not willing to blame anybody else anymore. What Dad did with us, because he was very much immersed in his career, he was not a demonstrative person in the sake of going out and telling people that he loved them. And what he did was give us jewelry. And I have a lot of material things that I wouldn't have had otherwise, and they're beautiful items. But today I look at them from a different perspective, not because I need to have a $2,000 bracelet on my arm. But I look at it as that was his way of being able to show us that he loved us. You know, and you have to let people be themselves. That they're doing the best they can with what they have. My mom's fears, like I said, grew worse as she got older, and her circle became very isolated. Back in 1978, I was also a police officer. And so I had a problem with hypoglycemia, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. Well, I knew that I was um, having problems, and one day I was on the way to work. I was getting ready to come down the stairs in my apartment, and I blacked out. And I managed to come to, and I knew this was about as far as I could go with this problem, so I managed to get to the hospital, and they kept me for three days. But this woman drove 150 miles to a place she'd never been, and she was terrified to grow, go much beyond from Troy to Charlotte, which is a 60-mile drive, where she knew where she was going. You know, but I think about the fact that she drove with great fear to a hospital in a city that she didn't know back and forth every day. You know, and to me, that's a lot more courageous. Um, And it's strange, you know, because I learned that we all have different fears. And it doesn't make any sense. Like I said, you know, I'm nervous here, but I go out. Two or three times a week, I work the projects of Wilmington, North Carolina, with a bulletproof vest and a gun and pepper spray in my hand. You know. 
And um, Keith says sometimes I always think about his story about being a little over 100 pounds and being five feet tall and joining the Marine Corps. I think I know. (laughs) And I was scared when I first started doing that. I was scared when I was a police officer. I was scared when I started this job. The second day after I became a police officer, I thought, what in the world have I done? But I was too afraid to back out. But they have been the best experiences of my life. As I got older, I felt smothered by my mom's affections. She was a lover and a giver, and she would smother you to death. Every time she came to my apartment, she would bring me something, so loaf of bread or whatever. It just got overwhelming. But a lot of what I was seeing was a mirror image of what I didn't like about myself. I understand that now. And I love the alcoholic, but the people that were like me, I couldn't stand. You know, but I was just seeing that mirror image. What Alan and I gave my mother and I, you know, there were times I just regret the fact that I was snappy with her, that I was ill at ease, and the tone of my voice was not very pleasant. And But the last six years of her life and the first six years of my life in Al-Anon made a big difference. I had a chance to grow up. I had a chance to change. And her health had deteriorated. Uh, she used to take long walks with me. In the last year or so of her life, she wasn't able to do that. She was only able to walk around a block or two around her house, and very slowly at that, and nothing strenuous. So I would get out and do my power walking, and I'd go by her house, and I would do the slow walks for her. Now, because I... I needed my exercise, sure, but, you know, I needed my mother. And it was a chance to rebuild that relationship. And what I found now is that I don't always have to agree with everybody, but I need to honor them. I especially need to honor my parents. They gave me the best years of their life, and, and like I said, I don't want to sit in judgment of them anymore. My sister and I have a strange relationship. My sister, I hope, like I said, will get in the rooms of AA or NA one day. Um, a while back when Keith and I were dating, I think before we got married, she reached out and called for help because she was taking prescription drugs. And I about fell apart then. I was in Al-Anon, but I still fell apart. You know? I thought that was her cry for help, and I better jump on it, otherwise she was going to die. And again, I learned that I was not responsible for another person's drinking or drugging. Uh, she did not follow through. We gave her the information to contact someone to get help, but she did not follow through, and I don't think she ever has, but I still pray that she gets what we have, because I think everybody in this room is a winner. Got a program, you got a chance. But my sister, you know, we could have led the same path in the sense of how we view the world as far as being whether it's to stay distorted or not. She's still in that world. She, uh, after many years has decided to blame my father for anything that might have happened between him and my mother um, and the fact that he doesn't always like what she does and vice versa. They had a major falling out about three or four years ago, and um, my father in his own way has tried to make some amends and made some overtures to try to get the relationship back together as best he knew how, but he's not always equipped to make the overtures that maybe somebody else might. But she has turned him down, and their relationship is estranged, and they have not spoken for years. decided to remain neutral and love these two people. It's caused much disconcerted feelings on my sister's part, because if I'm not on her side, I'm against her. So what I do today, we're on a speaking relationship, but I try to keep the doors open. I send cards, I call, I write, even if I don't get a response, and I'm not going to quit. Because she knows that I come here, and she knows Keith and AA, and that may be an outlet where she might need some information again one day. I'm not going to close the door on her. In junior high and in high school, it is no surprise that I became interested in guys. And I carried that on through college and had a series of alcoholic relationships. I would run out of fingers and toes several times over, counting those alcoholic relationships. I always said there were 100 guys on a football field and one of them was alcoholic. I was fine. <laughs> and uh, I think I told Doug, too, there's this, 
you know, it's my thought to this day, if I meet somebody that's interesting, I love my husband dearly. And I wouldn't trade him for anything in the world. But if I walk up to somebody and this is an interesting person, especially if it's a guy, the first thing that comes on is a little light bulb, just like the cartoons that says, alcoholic. <laughs> if they are normal, they are the most boring people on the planet. You know, I just <laughs> don't know many normal people, but I just usually try to stay away from them. <laughs> People who go through life and they've described, you know, their alcoholism is that having that big hole where the wind blows through, I think that is true for me too. Because I was trying to fill that hole, and by the time I got interested in dating, I tried to fill it with alcoholic. It's just I didn't understand what I was choosing. I didn't understand my choices. I didn't understand that the pattern of insanity for me was choosing the same type of relationship over and over and over again. But I still kept trying. I thought one day I was going to find the key to make it work, but it didn't. None of the relationships lasted very long. Um, a lot of these relationships, I never saw the people drinking. I saw the effects of their drinking. Um, back in my high school days, drinking was not as open even as it is now. And so people would go and drink with their buddies. And what I saw was the after effects where people didn't show up. You know, or, or something might happen or, or the irresponsibility played in again. I didn't understand, though, because I kept taking them back. If somebody was late for a date, I just kind of thought, well, it's my fault. <laughs> something I did happened between their, you know, telepathic something or other. But anyway, I took them back again. And um, when things would not work out and I could not manipulate it to work out the way I wanted it to, I would sit on my couch with my knees under my head and cry for hours. I knew something was wrong with me, but I didn't know what it was. But I knew something was terribly wrong. I always think about a guy that I was dating one time that was supposed to go take his Christmas presents to his children. He had been separated or divorced from his wife. And um, he was supposed to meet that person, the former spouse, at the North Carolina-South Carolina line, drop off the Christmas presents, at my house at such and such time, like 7 o'clock. He wasn't there. So about 8 o'clock he calls and said, well, I'm running late, but I'm still coming. Well, he calls again about 9.30, I'm still coming. So about 11 o'clock I gave up. 1 o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on my door. It's him. You know, but I let him in and sit on the couch, just like there's nothing wrong. You know, and I, I never could figure out. I thought that's the way normal people did it. You know, and I thought that that was okay to accept it that way, and that's the way relationships were all the time for me. I didn't know that there could be anything really any different. Um, I was thinking about a guy I dated when I was a police officer, and he was a police sergeant. At least I didn't date anybody in my immediate command. Uh, but he, you know, I even tried occasionally trying to drink with the alcoholic, but I didn't like the effects of it. And I know that's a sad story. <laughs> <laughs> But I've drank in a lifetime, you can put in this thing. But uh, one night, I was dating this police sergeant, and he had not long been separated from his wife. Um, and he had mixed two drinks. He mixed one for me and one for him. And we were supposed to go to someone else's house, so the good pre-Alanon that I am, he's driving. I'm, uh, excuse me, I'm holding two drinks in my hand, his and mine. You know, I'm not really interested in mine, but I'm going to do this because this is an obligation. This is the way we do it, you know. So he's sipping on his going along, you know. Well, behind us comes the former spouse's brother who's clocking his action and very mad because he's separated from her. And uh, the guy I'm dating, he's, he's upset, you know, and we're going to go on a high-speed chase, him chasing us. I didn't know what to do, and... Uh, all I knew was that he was afraid of getting beat up. I wasn't afraid of getting beat up. I was afraid to be standing there with alcohol in my hands. So I rolled down the window and threw both glasses out, you know, on the side of the road. And he was, then he became very upset. He was no longer worried about the man chasing us. He was worried about the alcohol. <laughs> but this would continue. Similar things all this through my life. 
He was dispersed in the alcoholics. I would try to date normal people. And like I said, I found them very sugary, sweet, and very boring. I couldn't have some chaos in my life, but normal for me. And uh, so by the time I got here to Al-Anon, I didn't understand that I was powerless, but I sure knew life was unmanageable. I got the last half of the first tip before I got the first half of it. My college years, I wish they could have been a little bit better. I wish I could have focused a little bit better on my grades. And I got through college and did reasonably well uh, with a major in criminal justice. But I changed majors uh, while I was in college. I know I disappointed my parents because my sister had done that. And I started out as an education major and later switched to criminal justice and law enforcement, which I'm very glad that I did, but it cost my parents an extra semester in college for me to do that. Uh, my sister had taken a history major in college, and they were upset because she could not teach when she came out, and you can't without an education background to go with a history major. So, um, you know, I, I was, again, feeling the effects of, of trying to make decisions and trying not to disappoint people. But I'm glad I went into the criminal justice background. My father had been a coroner. This was back before we had medical examiners, a long time before Quincy. <laughs> and uh, I've been to many a drowning and things. All our family get in the car, getting ready to go out to eat. And the radio would go off, and we'd go to the drowning at the river. <laughs> so I had a, he was also a fire chief, and my uncle was a sheriff. So I kind of naturally fell into this background. But I am glad, like I said, I did. A, I was a police officer for a year, and I've been a probation officer for 19 and a half years. And I have no regrets about that. Um, that was one of the best choices I made. And at least I stuck to something, even when relationships were falling apart. The alcoholic relationships continued. But when I was a police officer back in my hometown, I met and married a normal guy. Um, I had gone through so many relationships that did not work out and not understanding what we know in Al-Anon about patterns, I was determined that it wasn't meant for me to find love. It was meant for me to marry a good, decent, honest guy, and it would work out. I know to this day that that's not what works out. Um, the guy married, uh, he's now a federal agent. He was a detective at the time. I met him and married him within a year. But that delusional thinking that, that I had of marrying a good person, hoping that it would all work out. I got there on my wedding day. I had a beautiful dress and everything lined up and big church wedding. And stood there about a lot more nervous than I am today because I knew I was doing the wrong thing. But I was a people pleaser. I couldn't tell that guy that I couldn't marry him. I couldn't tell his family or my family that I couldn't marry him. I thought I, you know, I just couldn't tell anybody I made a mistake. Needless to say, this relationship did not work out. Um, we had our emotional quarrels, uh, and I could not stay married in good conscience to somebody that I did not love enough to be married to. It's a great deal of love to get married and stay married. And it takes even more than that. But I did not care enough about him to stay married to him. You know, and I regret that I did that to another human being. I have talked to him since then because of Al-Anon teaching me how to make amends. Uh, he has since remarried and has two beautiful daughters. And he is very, very happy. But we have made, you know, a friendship out of my effort to make an amends to him. And I've had the opportunities God has given me to go and talk to him. But we are at peace with each other today. And he never understood for a long time that he thought I just didn't want to be married. It wasn't that I didn't want to be married, but I, I had not married the person God wanted me to marry. In fact, I had not let God into the decision-making in my life. And today, I talk to God so much, you know, it's incredible. I ask him about from the tiniest things to the biggest things about what I need to do in life. This ended, this first marriage, of course, ended in a divorce, and I do take full responsibility for my actions. I continue to pray for him on a daily basis. I continue to pray for the people that I had the relationships with, all the alcoholics. Sometimes I can't recall them all by name. That's a very potent reminder to me. 
But I do remember them, and I remember faces, and, and from time to time the faces come back in my head, and it's important to pray for them. The last few months of my first marriage before I separated, I found you guys. And I found you via AA and taking people to learning about AA and taking people on probation parole to AA. If you don't already know, God wants you to have the very best. And God loves you very much. He lets us make our mistakes. And when we get out of the way, we get answers. So as a result of this program, I had started turning my will and my life with the care of God as I understood him. And basically did a lot of that very early on, except for turning over picking the relationships. Um, I thought I should be able to do this. And when I finally did that, I met Keith. Now, God has a sense of humor because I had dated a few other people named Keith. Those Keiths weren't mine. This one's meant to be. <laughs> I've been in the program about a year. And in the summer of 1985 when we met, we met at an AA meeting in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And I had gone to that meeting with a friend of mine, Teresa, who was in AA. Keith had formerly lived in Fayetteville. And he was then living in Alabama and was in the process of moving back to Fayetteville. And happened to be at this particular meeting to uh, give some support to a person who was speaking that night, Bob B., who's since passed on, was a dear friend of ours. And that's how we met at a meeting. And we've been together ever since then. Now, had I not had the tools of this program and Al-Anon and our sponsors, I feel sure I would have screwed that up. Because I didn't know how to do a good relationship. I didn't know how to be patient enough. I didn't know how to not the river. And I still tried to push it, but I didn't push it as hard, and I didn't try to go against the grain as much because I had the people in these rooms to help me. And so through prayer and time and good counsel, we stayed together, and we were married May 20th, 1989. We'll be married 11 years this May. Now, we knew each other four years before Keith and I got married, and all that time was valuable, and I can still say that I would have married him sooner than that. But when I look back, I know all, every bit of those four years was very important for us. We learned to grow together. We learned to, to see the things and work on things together and, and work out the relationship the way God would want us to have. My whole relationship with God is very different today. When I was a young woman, I grew up in a church. I grew up in a Methodist church and um, very grateful to the church I grew up in and learned a lot about God and how loving he was and still is. But I viewed God as being very distant in a corporate tower. I knew God looked after us, but I kind of looked at like looking down on the world kind of like as a whole. I didn't understand how much in depth he was interested in each of our lives. And I thought, well, you know, God gave you a brain. You're supposed to figure out all this stuff, you know, and don't bother God unless you really get desperate. <laughs> so that's kind of how I went through life. But Al-Anon basically brought me back to God. It taught me what a real personal relationship can be with God. And uh, I did get very much involved in that and still am. Uh, when I was studying Keith, Keith's Catholic, and I am too today. And I used to go to church with Keith, and somehow God touched my life, and I converted to Catholicism. Not because Keith Lewis wanted me to, but because God told me to do that. And I'm grateful to this day. But it was because I had turned my will and my life over and was listening to what God wanted me to do today instead of what Julia wanted me to do today. And so I am grateful for having done that to this day. We use the program of recovery and our sponsors and our faith to make decisions today in our relationship. But And love is wonderful, and you need love the rest of your life in a good marriage. If you don't have a good set of principles, you won't make it. And that's very important for me today. Uh, our lives are very busy. And both of us work hectic schedules, work schedules. I may work 8 to 5 one day, 2 to 11 the next day, 1 to 10 the day after that. And my, my life is not on a pattern. Keith's life's very busy um, in his career. And he has gone sometimes 20, 30 weekends a year speaking at AA conferences. Now, I love our programs. And, and AA gave sobriety to Keith, and Alan gave me my life back. And I'm going to support that. I miss my husband, but, you know, I, I've had a chance to learn to grow up. And I use the time when he's away, you know, they sleep late, <laughs> make it up and fiddle in the garden, as they say, <laughs> clean the house, whatever 
you know, needs to be done on the weekends. I do that. Or go down to the office and work some, whatever. Um, but I basically learned how to take care of myself. And when I get edgy or something, I pick up that phone and call one of you. Because I know you're there and I want to be there for you. But our programs are very important and, and what we do to support that is very important. We continue to pray a lot, not only as individuals, but a couple. Uh, we go to church every weekend that we're able to. Unless we're someplace where we can't get to church, we go. Um, but that has been, our faith has been real important to us with this program because we need a good, strong moral compass to go by. Keith's been very supportive of me. Not everybody would have their wife out in the projects running around midnight. And for that, I'm very grateful. You know, I'm sure he's worried about me a few times when I come in and tell the stories of what I saw that night. You know, and um, it's funny, when I get in that atmosphere, it's kind of like court. You know, I get up and do it, and my knees shake afterwards. And so somehow God has given me the grace to get through all that. Some of the things I learned in Al-Anon that were most applicable in my life is to detach with love. I still need this program, and I need it very much every day. I tend not to mind my own business. And it's very hard for me, especially in the office setting. I'll hear something going on down the hall, five, five offices down, and I've got ears that could hear something down the block. So I immediately want to go up and fix the thing that's going on five offices down. And it's going to be real important to me now that I work the principles of this program because I'm going to be a supervisor, supervising ten officers with caseloads just like what I have now. So I've got to learn not to micromanage people. You know, and I'm going to try a new thing. We're going to have probation running on the principles of this program. So people on probation out there, if you got, if you're on probation in North Carolina and on my team, <laughs> you're going to have 10 officers operating on the principles of AA and Alamo. And it's very important because 75% of the people that I work with have this problem. And, and, you know, I'm going to try to get us back there. If that's the one thing I'm going to do, I'm going to try to get us back to it. I also learned that there are no big deals. Keith said, you know, even if you get nervous, you get to go home tomorrow, nobody else will see you. <laughs> that's true. But I'm not nearly as nervous right now as I was when I stood up here a little while ago. <laughs> but there are no big deals. And there's not anything that the God of my understanding, you and I, can't sit down and figure out. It may not be the easy, softer solution, but there's a solution to everything. Some of the solutions are to do nothing. And that's been the hardest thing in the world for me to do. Especially between my sister and my father, I want to fix that so bad I can't stand it. And, you know, my father from time to time invites me in to try to fix it. And I've stayed out of that. You know, I'm just going to learn to love two people just the way they are. And not get in the middle of that. If you're new to Al-Anon, I encourage you to go to some open AA meetings. I think you'll find a lot of understanding. I think you'll find that the ism is in both places. And that, like I said, probably 70-80% of what we talk about in both of these rooms are common ground for both of us. For both AA and Al-Anon. I went and I sat and I listened. And I came to a, a great awakening because of AA. But please get help, please work the steps, and please take advantage of the tools of this program. Uh, you help yourself, and you help the other person that's trying to help you. And that's how we grow. And it's working these steps and making these amends where I didn't have to look behind my back to see who was standing on that corner. I don't worry anymore about looking what's around the corner and thinking I'm going to run into somebody that I, I might have hurt, you know. I want to be able to live that happy, joyous, and free life that everyone talks about in fellowship. Please get involved in service work. You know, service work can be anything. It can be chairing a meeting. It can be speaking at a meeting, setting out the literature, bringing the cookies, the coffee, setting up the room. And that's where I found some of the best rapport with people. I love the meetings, but the setting up the meeting with someone else. You get to sit down and talk to another human being while you're working with someone. And we're always there. We greet the newcomer. And that's a great opportunity for growth as well. What meetings do for me a lot is when I go to a meeting with a great big problem on my head, I walk out and my problem is real little when I leave and the solution is real big. You know, sometimes it's not a darn thing about what I was thinking about when I came to the meeting. 
you know, that I've got that mountain churning in my head, you know, about what am I going to do about this, you know. But the topic's not even on about what I'm concerned about. But when I leave, there's a solution. And that's one of the magic things that happens in Al-Anon. I would encourage you to get a sponsor. I've had three. My first sponsor uh, is a lovely lady, and I called her frequently several times a day years ago. She went back to school to get her college degree, and things got kind of hectic, and, and I ended up choosing another sponsor that I felt a little bit freer about calling on a regular basis because I need to call somebody frequently, especially in the early years. My second sponsor, Isabel, is a wonderful lady. Um, she has been good counsel to me all these years and has since retired and lives in a retirement home now in Virginia. Uh, she was also my matron of honor when Keith and I got married. Very special lady. But her health deteriorated, and uh, I now have Carol T. from Longdale, California. And many of you have, who have been to a conference have probably met Carol. She's a wonderful lady, and she will tell it like it is. And uh, if I had not come here today, she would have beat me up. <laughs> so please tell her I did show up, <laughs> that I didn't chicken out. But I talk to my sponsor. I try to talk to people in my home group. Those are the people I trust to give me, you know, I trust them to give me their advice. I ask them for, my, for their advice. And like I said, it's to take what you like and leave the rest. And I take what they say to heart because I know that that home group is there we're there to help each other, and we're there for each other's best interests and to try to help each other. And that's where I check out my thinking to see if I'm on track. And I want to thank the committee again for asking me here today to speak. Um, especially want to thank Jeannie and Doug, who hosted us, and Rob, who I got to meet. Todd, where are you? Where's Todd? Is he still here? Okay. Todd cooked last night a wonderful meal for the committee and the speakers. I thank you. Judy, thank you for asking us, and if you're in North Carolina, please come and see us. And thank you, the state of Ohio, for sending me my husband. <laughs> From Martinsbury, Ohio, I have made him a southerner. <laughs> <laughs> <Goodbye>. <laughs>